Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Welcome to The Last Word, where we take one last look at the message from Crosstalk each week. I'm Paulina, and I'm here with JD, who gave the message to us last night at Crosstalk. And JD, you talked about um, the prayer that Jesus has in what we know as the Garden of Gethsemane from other Gospels, and um, talked about his the tension of really his struggle to be obedient um, and also the humanness, the humanity of Jesus, that um, just the tension of both things and him struggling to make that decision. And so I wanted to just go ahead and ask you if you could reflect based on you prepping for the message and kind of giving it last night when you uh, had experienced a tension like that, knowing what God had for you and his will for you in your life. Um, and then also being human and not wanting to do it. I love that you said that because it's just real and it's what we experience. So for you, what has that been like? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we feel those tensions on a, on a regular basis in life. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we are asked to, to do things or to say things or to follow through on commitments that we would rather <laughs> not. And I look back on my life and I, and I look at large scale moves for me, like, oh, I left a, me being young, left a high paying job at a church to go work at a ministry where I wasn't making a lot of money. And, and those things don't make logical sense. It's like, I know, I knew in my heart of hearts that this was obedience, that this is what God was calling me to. But at the same time, it's really hard to, to give up comfort. It's really hard to give up, um, reputation or any of the other things that come with that. And so for me, that was definitely a moment was, was a job change and a move where I was leaving someplace of, of relative comfort and security, moving to a place where those things were not as outwardly abundant moving forward. Yeah. Absolutely. I like that you said that the things that it costs us, because that's what I've been thinking about is it's always a sacrifice in some way of something. Um, And then I love that you also talked about humble submission. And how do you, how do we exercise? How would you recommend, give tips to people for how to exercise humble submission in our relationship with God? I felt convicted about that. So I want to know too. Yeah. It, I hesitate to say this, but I do think it's true that the word submission is kind of like a dirty word in Christianity sometimes. Um, it's used as as an excuse to kind of get run over or trampled by people and and not stand up for yourself for, or all of these other things. And so it's got this connotation. But when we look at this in a very biblical sense, we see that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. And that submission was really just humble obedience. And so if we simplify this down, it's not this kind of dirty word, but we see that it has so much value because in in our submission, we, we look to God and we understand that His plan, that His ideals, that His will for our lives is greater than what we could have for ourselves. In a lot of senses, it's submission is the death of our own ego. And and our ego is, uh, to quote Bob Moss here, not our amigo. And in that, when we think that we have control, when we think that we are, that we know best, oftentimes we end up screwing it up. And so in, in our submission to God, it is a deference to the fact that God knows best, that God cares for us, that God loves 
us in a way that we can't comprehend and that we obviously don't have the full picture. Mm, Yeah, that makes total sense. I like that. And when you ended, you talked about how this is right before Jesus is taken to be crucified. And we are a week almost from Easter. And so um, I wanted to ask you as we're looking forward at Holy Week this week, how can we what would be like tips or just something um, that would help us be able to make this week about Jesus and to daily remember that it's Holy Week and it's meaning and what we've seen in Luke so far building up to get to? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is a really special week, mm-hmm. um, starting on Sunday with Palm Sunday, leading up to Good Friday and and Easter Sunday. What I've been reflecting on is just reading the stories. When we get to Palm Sunday and and taking time to open up to, and it doesn't even matter which of the gospel accounts, whether you want to go to Matthew, Mark, or Luke and reading the Palm Sunday account. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the week, kind of following Jesus's journey from his entry into Jerusalem, reading his time in the temple, reading about Passover, reading about him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and really turning our attention towards those stories. Because... For those of us who have maybe grown up in the church, you've heard them throughout your life. And those of you guys who maybe are just coming to faith in Jesus, maybe you've never heard them, but they take on new meaning when we take the time. And it's and it would be really a fasting mentality of taking the time when we would normally be choosing, whether that's social media or that is food or things of that nature, to choose and turn to the Word of God and to delve into the story of Jesus to more fully understand really what he went through and what he suffered for our sake. Mm -hmm. And when it becomes personal in that sense, it becomes actually something that is applicable for our lives. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Yeah. What a week. And thanks for being on here, JD. We, that's it for the last word. Um, You guys stay on for the message from this week to recap from last night. Sweet. We'll see you guys next week. It is so good to be with you guys today. Everybody have a good spring break this past week? Yeah. If I, if I don't know you guys, uh, I haven't had the chance to meet you guys. Maybe it's your first time here. My name is JD. I'm the Crosstalk Pastor here with Cypress Creek Church. We are so glad that you guys are here. Every time we have the chance to be on campus is something special just because we don't get to do it all the time. And most of us probably didn't even have to drive to get here, which is always a gift uh, I know we had a whole bunch of people went to Arkansas, several groups, Arkansas for spring break. Anybody else make it farther than Arkansas? Work. <laughs> Seattle, Seattle, Mississippi. Okay. I know we also, is Mark here? I know he was in Yosemite, so he was out in California, but Washington may be the farthest that anybody got to travel Did they drive? I, no. You definitely drove the farthest. Yeah, that's for certain. Um, Taylor and I got lucky enough. We got to go out. Uh, we've got some friends in Utah. And so we went out and we went skiing for the weekend. We did not drive for sure. That is a miserable 20 hours in the car. But we went out to Utah. We skied for two days out there. Stayed in a little mountain town called Eden. And Eden puts you within like a half hour of two kind of major places to go ski in Utah. And the first one is, is Powder Mountain and the other is Snow Basin. In Snow Basin, we skied one day and we got super lucky. 
the night before we went, it snowed like 14 inches up there. So there's all of this fresh powder. And so we, we get up early, we're skiing out there, and it is just gorgeous. It is 30 degrees and sunny, just about as good as you can get if you're going spring skiing. And so we, knowing we're only going to be there one day, we ski as hard as we can all day. And this is a huge mountain. And so we're trying to hit a little bit of everything. And so we get to the afternoon and we go from kind of the main section of the mountain where you can work your way over to this far side. And over on this far side is like a whole different set of runs. And they're super beautiful. People don't go over there. So we're skiing by ourselves. We're having this awesome experience. And we get down to the bottom of the gondola and we're hopping on. And the guy before the doors close, he goes, hey, just so you know, we're shutting this lift down early. And so when you guys get up there, if you don't make it back to the main part of the mountain, you are going to have to hike in your ski boots all the way out of here. So like, oh my gosh, wait, what in the world? Like, th this sounds awful. So now it's the stress of I'm in a new place and I'm trying to find my way. It's like getting lost in the grocery store as a young kid. You're like, how do I get home? Where is the exit? And so we're up there, we're stressed about getting out and not having to hike out. And by the time we get, this gondola is like 2,000 feet of elevation. And so it's nice and it's sunny down low. And then we get up to the top and it is snowing harder than I have been in a snowstorm in a long time. Like it is absolutely whiteout conditions. Like from me to Johnny, I can't see that far. And so it's snowing like crazy. We know we have to get off of the mountain. And so we start skiing. And uh, there, there are these things called cat tracks. And these cat tracks are basically uh, like, yay, from the second row up to the mics wide. And they're a way for the snow cats to come up the mountain every night and they groom the mountain. And you, generally for us as skiers, if you guys go skiing, it's a way for you to transition from one area to the next. So they're really mellow and they're not very steep. And so it's super easy skiing. Like if you've never been skiing, that is a great place to learn as you ski these cat tracks and it's a nice, easy way down. Well, I can't see anything and I'm just following. There, there are little signs that are like as big as this mic stand around. And you're just like hoping that you see one. And I'm leading the group. Of, it's me, my dad, and a family friend of ours. You know, we're skiing, and I just am like, well, crap, I can't see anything. I can't see anything. I just keep skiing, and I think I'm on the cat track. And then all of a sudden, I just fell off of an edge. I, did, I literally never saw it. And so it was exactly like Wiley e. Coyote when he was chasing Roadrunner, and he runs off the edge of the cliff, and his legs are still going. He looks down and falls. That's what I felt like. It was like, huh, there's nothing underneath me. And then I just fell and hit the ground. Like, stood up, and I'm in waist-deep snow, and I'm like, well, what do I do now? It's real embarrassing because I got to take my skis off, got to hike back up. I, still no one can see anything. My dad's laughing at me, which is always a lovely experience. And so I, I hike my butt up there and we go on and we keep skiing and it, we wor it works out totally fine. But there's, there's something kind of unique about cat tracks and skiing. Generally, because they are these transition areas, when you go from one to the next, you'll get to the run that you want to ski. And there's this moment when you're on top of that edge on the cat track, and it's almost always the steepest part is that little drop-in to get to where you're going. And so you go and you put your skis over the edge and you're like, well, if I go, then I'm going. Like, I can't back out. Once I go over this edge, I'm in it until I figure it out. And so you kind of do all of this risk assessment. And you say, well, 
do I actually want to go off of the edge right here? And then you just kind of have to commit and turn your skis downhill and go. And any of you guys maybe who like grew up skiing or maybe you grew up riding a skateboard where you tried a skateboard once and fell real hard, it was probably because of this. You go to like the mini ramp and then the moment you drop in, it's terrifying because it seems to go straight down. Maybe even just like bombed a hill as a kid on your bike and you got going and then you realize I can't stop anymore. <laughs> so you just kind of have to hold on for dear life until you're, until you're at the bottom. It's kind of those sorts of things. And, and we go through those sorts of things in life all the time and they don't always apply to sports. It can apply to relationships, right? Once you say something, there's no like taking that back. And we've all felt the effects of, of saying the wrong thing. And you're like, I wish those words would just like come back to me. But they're out there. And now I just have to deal with the consequences of what I said. And sometimes we make a choice that there's no going back on. Whether that is a dating relationship, maybe it's a work choice, quitting a job, changing a major, where you go to school. All of those things are, are, are large commitments, right? And they feel like oftentimes when we're making those things that those are like, that is the singular most important decision I'm ever going to make in my life. Did you guys feel that way with like going to college? It just feels like this huge deal, right? That once I commit, I'm like committed. And those, those things happen all the time and they happen in everybody's life. And Today, we're going to look at one of those crux moments in Jesus's life, where depending on what he decides, depending on what he does, determines the trajectory of so much in his life. And so we spend a lot of our time when we make those choices, we either live into the fruit of those good decisions, or we spend a lot of time and effort and energy trying to correct it, right? Like when you say the wrong thing, to, to somebody that you care about. There's like a much longer period of time trying to correct what you just said and wished you didn't say. It's sort of like that. And so before we hop into it, I just want to kind of catch us up on where we're at in the story here in Luke. And, and before spring break, Paulina shared with us um, Jesus's entry into the city of Jerusalem. He rides in on a colt that the disciples have found for him. And the people are lining the roads and they're laying their coats down on the road as they go by him. And the disciples who had seen all of these miracles, who have heard all of these teachings in the crowd, they hail him as a king coming into Jerusalem. And we call that in the church calendar Palm Sunday. It's actually coming up just this coming Sunday. And it marks the, the beginning of the week of Easter. And so we looked at that and we saw how Jesus is perceived by the different people in the crowd and how some people perceive him as a king. Some people perceive him as a teacher, but they don't understand kind of the fullness of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And Jesus weeps over that, it tells us. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem that he has just entered. And now, since he has come into Jerusalem, we've had this moment, Paulina described it as kind of his superhero moment, where he comes in and he, it's a kind of announced for the first time of who he is. It's the same thing of like the old, the old version of Superman where he goes into the, into the telephone booth and he comes out and he's dressed and flies off to save the world. It's this moment where Jesus is embracing this title for the first time. He's not keeping it quiet. And so he enters in to the city of Jerusalem and it says that every day he goes into the temple and he teaches the people. 
And so he goes and he teaches. And then from there, it says that he retreats every day up onto the Mount of Olives. And then he comes back down the following morning. And so we come to this time that's called the Passover and this this festival in the Jewish calendar. And Jesus has the disciples and they go and they get a house. They go and they get a house for this Passover meal. And we see for the first time that Jesus institutes communion, like the Lord's Supper. And he goes on and he teaches them about who is greatest. And then after that, it says that he goes out and he goes as was his custom, and he goes up onto the Mount of Olives. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. But before we read this passage, I wanted to stop and I wanted to talk a little bit about what we were going to read today, because it's super important for us in understanding the life of Jesus. And it's Luke's scene of Jesus here in the Mount of Olives marks a critical point in the larger narrative for us, because really the consequences of this exact moment are so huge. The consequences are massive. Quite frankly, this is the deciding moment in the gospel story. Jesus has repeatedly told the disciples of the necessity of him suffering. And now that suffering is imminent. It's going to happen. And the the question that drives the plot of this story is whether Jesus will continue along the path of submission to the Father. Will he continue to be obedient to God or will he shun his preordained role and walk away? And that's the point of no return where Jesus makes a decision that means everything for us and it has meant everything for humanity ever since that decision was made. And it starts here in Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 39 if you guys have your Bibles with you or if you just want to open up your phone. And it says that it came out and he went as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And so Jesus is now leaving the house. He's going up onto the Mount of Olives, as he does every day. Luke chapter 21 tells us that he goes every day up there. And the Mount of Olives is is this ridge of three mountains that's out to the east of Jerusalem. And it's the middle peak is the Mount of Olives. And from up there, you can see down into the entire city of Jerusalem. So he's going up there. And so Luke paints this scene for us. And really what we see is that Jesus is the focal point of this story. The disciples are just following along behind him. They're like kind of puppy dogging. You know, it's just like you're walking and the dog is following. That's kind of what's going on here. They're in the peripheral of the story. And so the scene is all about what Jesus is going to do. And it says in verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray, that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And what's really interesting about Luke's version of this story is he doesn't specify the place that this is taking place. Both of you were to flip to Matthew or you were to flip to Mark, both of them specify that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. But Luke doesn't. And the other notable difference here is that although Jesus comes up onto the Mount of Olives. A big part of the narrative in both Mark and Matthew is Jesus withdrawing from the disciples, bringing with him Peter, James, and John, and giving instruction to them. He wants those three to specifically pray with him in this moment. And again, Luke doesn't point that out. He simply says that he went a stone's throw 
away. And that could mean a whole lot of things. Like it could be Uncle Rico's football throw, or it could be like me with my left hand, which could barely make it to Paulina. And so it's this ambiguous amount of distance, right? That doesn't matter to Luke in this narrative. And in this moment, we see that key narrative details in the other gospel accounts aren't present in this. And it's really interesting because for us as readers of the Bible, these two details, people in place, are two huge keys in terms of reading a story, right? And so we have to ask the question, why doesn't Luke include those? What it, why doesn't he care about the people? And why doesn't he care about the place? And so when we go back into this, we see the answer is what Luke places emphasis on. And the emphasis here in Luke's telling of this story is very specifically the theme of prayer. First, by Jesus's instructions to the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And now Jesus goes on to set an example, right? That he kneels down and he prays. And and kneeling down and praying, that is a position of submission. That is a position of humility before God when we enter into that time of prayer. And so that's what Luke really wants us to clue in on, is this idea of prayer that's happening. And Jesus, it says, prayed in verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And if we're really paying attention to the language here in Jesus's prayer, it it has echoes back to Jesus's temptation in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. And what's really interesting about Jesus's temptation in the wilderness is that's the first time that he is tempted to not be obedient, to not do what God has called him to do. And so we see this language coming here to the forefront on the Mount of Olives, and this theme of obedience reaches kind of a climax for us in this moment. With the opposing purposes of of God and of the enemy here clashing at this moment, Because Jesus has to choose whether he will be obedient. Knowing what is coming, will he do what he knows he's going to have to do? I was reading a scholar this week who pointed out that there's a certain sense of irony in this scene, since if Jesus embraces the cup in obedience to God's will, he will accept the will, the fate willed for him by Satan, which is death. And only as the story unfolds does it become clear that Jesus' death represents not the greatest of the devil's achievements, but actually his demise. And so that's kind of the 30,000-foot view here of what's going on. We're seeing that there's this large-scale kind of battle of good and evil that looms over this exact moment. And so we turn to Jesus' prayer. And in this prayer, we see that Jesus does two things. He does two things, the first of which is that he points to God's sovereignty. He points to God's sovereignty, and he also indicates his willing obedience to God in this moment. Faced with the looming reality of his own death, Jesus asks that this cup will be taken from him. It's clear that he doesn't want to do it, but it's also clear that he's willing to be obedient in this moment. And what we need to recognize is that even in making this request, Jesus affirms his future is in God's hands, not his own. And so it's only if 
God does something, if God changes something, if God changes his plans, that Jesus will forego his ultimate suffering and death. But that is dependent upon God changing things and not Jesus. God's will and Jesus' submission to that will are the keys for us in Jesus' prayer. And this is the example that Jesus sets for us in our attitude, in our submission before God. And if you guys were to look over the course of history, it, this, this moment, this scene, this prayer has caused a lot of people to struggle for a lot of years. And they struggle because, quite frankly, Jesus, this picture of Jesus isn't what they expect it to be. What they expect Jesus to be is the king that the people declared him to be as he came into the city of Jerusalem a week before this. What they expect him to be is the savior of the nation of Israel who goes and he conquers and throws out the Romans so that the Israelites have freedom. And yet we don't see this conquering, omniscient, all-powerful God. We see Jesus in all of his humanity struggling that he knows what he's about to have to do and he doesn't want to do it. And so people say, what kind of God is that? And I look at this picture and I think that it is the most helpful picture for me in the Bible. Because I look at this picture and I see a God who struggled. A God who struggled with the same things that I struggle with. Who struggled with what it means to submit and to be obedient to a God that I sometimes don't understand. And oftentimes, I don't want to do what he says. And so Jesus shows me what humble submission looks like. And it says that he prepared himself for his ultimate death by turning to God in prayer. And verse 43 says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And this is another aspect that's really unique to the book of Luke. None of the other gospel accounts mention that there's an angel present in this moment. And there's this great temptation to get way off into the weeds in thinking about this angel, right? We could ask a million questions. We could think it into a million circles. But really, what we need to be doing here when we read this is saying, why is the angel present? What is the purpose of the angel? Everything else is very secondary. So we see here that the purpose of the angel is this is God's response to Jesus's prayer. It wasn't to remove the cup or to change his plan, but it was to give him strength in this moment. Strength for what he is about to have to endure. And that strength comes in the form of an angel. And the result of that angel is that Jesus prays all the more fervently. He's praying so fervently that his sweat becomes like blood falling to the ground. And Luke goes out of his way here to portray Jesus' humanity in this moment. He is in agony about what he is about to experience. Jesus realizes the truly terrible thing he faces. But he is ready in this moment now to face death because of God's strengthening through the presence of the angel. 
And it says in verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus rising from his time of prayer singles, uh, symbolizes the completion of his task. We see that when he rises, there's a level of determination, that there is a level of commitment, and he is certain of God's will for him, and he is also certain of what he is supposed to do in this moment. He has made his decision. And the disciples at best have been in the very peripheral of this entire scene up until this moment. And now Jesus brings them back to center stage. And their behavior stands in stark contrast, both to the instruction of Jesus, but also then Jesus's example that he sets for them. But we see that Jesus's response here is that of one of great grace. Because first, he excuses the disciples' behavior by attributing it to grief. He says that they were sleeping for sorrow. And the second thing here is that Jesus reminds them of their instructions to rise and pray that you may not fall into temptation. And so we must assume that their failure on the Mount of Olives was intended to be a teaching moment for the disciples. There isn't a hint, and we can read tone into this in a million different ways. When we look at this, it's a plain statement. There doesn't seem to be anger. There doesn't seem to be malice. There doesn't seem to be hurt in this. But he's saying, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the disciples here fail to understand the gravity of this moment. How could they? Right? Their insensitivity to what is happening here stands in stark contrast to Jesus. And so the whole narrative we see is bookended by the same command, the command to pray that you might not enter into temptation. And we've asked this question a lot tonight. We Again, we have to stop and we have to ask the question, why? Why is it at the beginning? Why is it at the end? There's something significant about it, right, if he's repeating it. And so we look at this, and why is the story structured in this way? And I think it's because Luke wants to do something unique here. One, he wants us to learn more about the person and the work of Jesus. But secondarily, he also wants to use this as a moment to instruct us. He wants to teach us. And he wants to teach us using Jesus' own words and Jesus' own example that prayer is the thing that keeps us from temptation and in line with God's will. And there are two things that I want to make sure that we notice when it comes to this story. Because it's an awfully short story. It's only seven verses. And the most important thing for us to realize is that Luke creates this scene so that we emphasize Jesus's obedience to God's will. Luke does this for us by creating the contrast, right? Numerous times he contrasts the disciples and Jesus. And we see the instruction that is repeated throughout. And so it draws us to the point that we see here that Jesus's submission to the will of the Father is radical. It is remarkable in and of itself. And the focus of Jesus' life, a life lived 
in harmony with God's divine plan for salvation is inseparable from the death he anticipates. Even when he doesn't want to do it, he is committed to his role. And that commitment makes all the difference for us today. All the difference in the world. And so we have that like major theme here at the front for us, but we also have this, this theme of instruction because Luke wants us to learn from this. And we see here that Luke intentionally employs this scene as a teaching tool. He teaches us that the way to remain obedient to God's will in times of trial is through persistent, heartfelt, submissive prayer. And this is evidenced by Jesus' own words to the disciples and the example he sets for them in this scene. And what's remarkable about this is that although the, the disciples very obviously fail to grasp the point here, if we were just kind of to flip back over to the book of Acts, we see that this exact concept begins to take root. Because we look at the story of the apostles in the book of Acts and we see their own willingness to submit themselves to the will of the Father, even to the point of death, as the church begins to grow and to spread, starting in Jerusalem and working its way out. So why do we pray in times of trial? Because Jesus told us to do it. And Jesus himself did it. That's the bar, right? That's kind of the easy ones. When we, look at the, when we look at the Bible and we say, like, what still applies to us today? Well, if Jesus said it and Jesus did it, that's a pretty good indication for us. And so we look at this and we say, okay, this is, this is what we do. And so when we look at this crux moment in really the history of salvation, Jesus is the thing that takes center stage. He stands firmly in the middle. His mission here on earth becomes clear for us in this moment. And his resolve to be the sacrifice that is needed to pay the price for our sins. And everything else fades away. The disciples fade away. The angel fades away into the background. Even his impending suffering fades away. He alone stands here in the forefront for us to look at. He is our example. He is our teacher. And he is the one who has modeled what it means for us to live a life of faithful pursuit of God. And as we enter Holy Week, this upcoming week, because Palm Sunday is on Sunday, and it all leads up to Good Friday, and then to Easter Sunday, I want us to take a moment and to reflect to look at the scene here and look at the scenes that we're going to continue to look at over the next nine days up until Easter Sunday and realize that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And to remember the sacrifice on our behalf, to remember the agony that he felt going into this experience and to make this next week all about him, to focus our gaze on Jesus, to keep it at the front of our mind. Because when we do that, we're more able to internalize the difference that it makes for us. It makes all the difference.
for me, for you, and for the entire world. And that mobilizes us into a force that begins to model the life of Jesus into the communities around us. And that's how we see the gospel of Jesus Christ spread to be a force for change here with our friends, with our families, in our classes, and ultimately here in the school.